Welcome back to Hints and Guesses, my podcast. What is going on? What kind of world are we living in right now? Everything has been turned upside down, and I'm sitting down to make a podcast, the Corona podcast, from my echoey three-season porch, which is about 40 degrees right now. And my son, amazingly, discovered GarageBand yesterday and started making some beats. He's like, Dad, I'll make you some beats for the podcast. I was like, whatever you make, I'll put on there. So music brought to you by my son, Jonas. Um, he, he made this, by the way. I don't know how. I mean, it's like, uh, I'm, I'm too old, I guess, but somehow playing the keyboard using just the keyboard on the laptop. He needs a little MIDI keyboard, so we're trying to negotiate that now. Um, yeah, so I guess this is the, is the family edition. You might hear birds chirping. You might hear kids fighting in the background. You might hear doors slamming. Um, I will not edit any of it out. Oh, yeah, so... What kind of time, what kind of age, what kind of era is this? It's like that Greek word kairos, which is different than chronos, which is chronological time, but like the fullness of time. And it feels that way, like as if time itself is pregnant and um, or as if something is being revealed or coming into focus that um, both exposes what modern life is really like and also what the nature of reality is really like. And I, it seems to, in the midst of, I think, despair and confusion, and let's just be honest, that's what it is, despair and confusion. In the midst of that, there is also a sense that we're being called to our own greatness and to an imaginative way of being in the world and turning toward this instead of away. Um and maybe, maybe even calling us to n not just sort of to survive the virus, but to reimagine what it means to be a, a, a human being on this deeply interconnected planet, which we're now recognizing and realizing, which we knew intellectually, I suppose, but um, the speed and scale in which we're recognizing how interwoven everything, everything, everything is, it is a bit overwhelming. And at the same time, maybe is calling forth something from us. And that's what I want to talk about today. In fact, I want to, I guess I want to make a podcast about what I'm going to call um, the tension of opposites. And, um, and the tension of opposites in all of the great traditions, spiritual traditions, is the, is the place where growth happens. And um, maybe, maybe just to refer to Carl Jung, he says ego growth, and he doesn't mean ego negatively. It's just um, our our consciousness, uh, the I, the thing I call I, the thing I call me or mine, um, my awareness can grow and should grow, and that's what psychological and spiritual growth looks like—an expansion of consciousness. And for that to happen, for growth to happen, or he says um, it happens with collisions. I love that word. It's, it's not um, a maintaining of the status quo, but in collisions and the collision of opposites and, and uncertainty and sometimes suffering 
or great love, um, something confronts who we are and what we thought the world was really like, and that's an opportunity for growth. So no matter what, there is some potential um, pregnant in in the confusion and the despair, no doubt. And uh, I'm, I'm thinking also of Rilke's poem, Let Everything Happen to You, Beauty and Terror. That's another... Uh, hint at the kind of tensions I want to go toward. Let everything happen to you, beauty and terror. No feeling is final, he says. Just keep going. And I don't know, I, I, I hope in, my, in a small way, the things I want to say on this podcast will help you in your own way to keep going and to allow and everything to happen to you. Um, and I'll say more of, a, I guess, what I mean by that in a few minutes. Um, on the on the advertisement side of things, man, not even the most acute prophets among us could have predicted what is going on right now. Uh, I work at C3, West Michigan's inclusive spiritual community here in Grand Haven, Michigan, and we're closed, just like every other place, and, and we're going to try to continue to offer something on Sunday mornings, 10 a.m. You can tune in on our Facebook page. You can find that if you're a Facebook person. Uh, we might think of some other creative ways, too, um, and to continue to stay connected and to speak about what's happening. So the rest of my life, however, retreats, programs, and pilgrimages, I was about to... to unveil two Israel uh, pilgrimages uh, next year and some re- retreats and programs that were coming in the spring and summer and all of a sudden all that's on hold and, and some in some sense evaporated into thin air. So I'm sure you know what I'm talking about, <laughs> what you thought was reliable and just how you how you made a living it suddenly seems so fragile. So that's not going to happen anytime soon. So I'm really grateful to my Patreon supporters who are helping make this podcast happen. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And um, if you want to become a a patron, you can do so through my website, kenthompson.com. You can find the link on there. Um, The other thing that's happening is I I also offer something I call companion guiding. You can go to kenthompson.com and look under companion guiding and see what that's about. And that I've gotten more interest in that. So if you want to talk to somebody in a one-on-one fashion, I'm opening up some additional spots for companion guiding. I've lowered my prices a little bit to make that more affordable. I also work with people from a a variety of uh, financial situations. All that that, that information is on my website, including the questionnaire that you need uh, just to uh, let me know you're interested. So all that is now available. Um, And check it out if, if there's a tug there in some way. So the first thing I think I'd like to say has to do with our kind of in, uh, instinctual response to stress, uh, traumas, and anxieties that goes back to early childhood. And if you've done any work, Psychology 101, Counseling 101, Therapy 101, you've encountered words like this, I'm sure, um, or if not, you've you've uh, if you if you had a decent halfway decent uh, counselor, uh, you were working with these anyway, 
And that is um, when it comes to stress somewhere in early childhood and, and traumas and wounds, we tend to respond, and nobody gets out of this, by the way, with two major uh, reactions, and that is overwhelmment and abandonment. And I wanted to mention them in this podcast and as just a starting place, because if you want to bring some increased consciousness to what's going on in your own, in the labyrinth of your own inner landscape, try to bring some consciousness to the very subtle and sometimes unconscious, really, uh, reactivity rooted in abandonment and overwhelmment. And particularly when it comes to fear, um, to fear and threat and uncertainty without even thinking. And actually thinking is not even involved up from the deep resources just beneath our ego consciousness comes overwhelmment and an abandonment and a series of coping strategies that are connected to these primary responses. And I I wanted to just say that out loud at the beginning. If you are feeling overwhelmed, that is normal. And you probably have a series of coping strategies you learned in early childhood that are helping you. And actually, they do, in fact, help you. They can also uh, keep you severely limited. We can talk about that in a few minutes. If you are feeling uh, a bit... um, like you may be abandoned and think about the social distancing for those of us who struggle with abandonment. I mean, it's like you're being told, isolate yourself. And nobody is like enlightened enough, is Buddha enough to um, keep at bay the, the feeling sense of abandonment. Like, wait, how alone am I? And the series of coping strategies that, that come with, with overwhelmment and abandonment. So just put that on the back burner and um, bring some consciousness to that. You can even you can even do a little journal exercise at something like, um, what word do I connect with more and what are ways that I tend to deal with these stressors? And and you'd be surprised. It's you might discover just in terms of self-discovery and self-healing, you might discover some things just by turning attention to the reality of this. Uh, your own reactive responses in the midst of uh, this strange world we live in. And in fact, not to sound uh, too dramatic, let me, let me use one other big word here, and that is apocalyptic. I mean, I cannot help thinking, I guess I'm so deeply rooted in ancient literature and in, and in biblical literature that, that global um, uh, unfoldings sound a bit apocalyptic. And in fact, they are. And I, of course, have a... a a radically different um, notion of what apocalypse is than than mainstream culture, how it usually uses it, sort of like end of the world kinds of things. But apocalypse means to reveal. And apocalyptic literature imagined and created symbols and scenarios and stories uh, that revealed the actual nature of things. That's what's going on in the book of Revelation. It's using um, dramatic symbols to highlight and to reveal just how fragile and thin the Roman Empire really was and, and how addicted it was to its own power and greed and materialism built on the backs of the poor and the suffering and, uh, and the pillage of the earth itself. 
And it's saying something like, this cannot last. And the, in, in the drama and the upheaval of the thing we call civilization and culture, new things emerge. And that's, that's, what, that's what the apocalypse really is. It's the, it's the death and rebirth of something. It's the collapse and renewal that happens simultaneously. And yes, to be straightforward, we're in an apocalyptic time. And we have been for some, for a while, at least in my view, the turning of the 20, 20th century, the 21st century, it's been building, but it's been mostly hidden. And all of a sudden something erupts and it comes into our consciousness and to use the, the, the straightforward meaning of it, it reveals. And once the blinders come off, so to speak, not that we're all of a sudden become sort of fully aware of what's going on, but the blinders come off and we begin to see what we haven't wanted to see, that's when we get flooded with abandonment and overwhelmment. So it's going to happen. Period, it's going to happen. So it's okay. Like Taylor Swift, you need to calm down. All right, this is, I'm not as enlightened as I once thought. <laughs> um, I thought I had done all this work. Yes, and it's good and, and needed work, but let's just be honest. We are human beings and we're filled with um, shadows and instincts and repressed um, ways of being, and we're also filled with possibilities and imagination and what I would call the glory of being a human being. So, um, yeah, let's, I'm, I made a list of tensions that are happening right now, and, and I'm not going to, I'll try not to make too much comments about them, but to see if you can get a sense of, of the tensions that, that, that exist right now. And by the way, I want this, I actually have in mind, I, I, um, I want to explore the tension of, the op, uh, of some opposites here. I want to name some, and then I want to explore one in particular, one or two in particular, both asking questions of, um, is it okay to feel what I feel? And what third thing might be arising as an opportunity for, for growth? And, and I also want it to be quite practical. So by the end, I want to try to say, what can I do? What can we do? And I think there are some things that, that we can do to bring increased consciousness to the collision that is happening right now. So, um, all right, so here are some tensions. What is tiny and invisible and unseen is somehow also global, universal, and borderless. How can something invisible wreak so much global impact and seem to, to impact every single human being on the planet. Here's another tension. Um, are the, the deep, innate, uh, instinctual capacities for survival that has made us human also exist alongside our very human capacities for cooperation? Here's another tension. Not many of us trust the government. In fact, we could even say maybe at no other time, of course, I don't know, I'm not that old, I'd have to ask someone from some older generations, maybe at no other time, maybe in the 1960s, I don't know, There has there been less trust in the government? And we're also being asked to trust the government because we don't know. We we don't know. I mean, people keep, I don't know if it's happening to you, but people are like, well, what do you think how long this is going to last? I mean, I don't know. 
Nobody freaking knows. So there's like this tension between do I trust my lack of trust for the government or do I trust the government might know something that I don't or experts might know something that I don't or scientists might know something that I don't. Here's another tension. I guess I already mentioned it. I know and I don't know. There are things that I know. And, and at the very same time, I'm feeling a flood of just how little I know about the way the world works and even about what's true. Here's another tension. We have a health system and we have health care, and they seem like wild opposites right now. A health system, a health economic system, and we have health care, and they seem to be worlds apart right now. We have um, a growth economy and, and a kind of ideology that has believed and believed for some time that perpetual growth is um, possible at what cost <laughs> we don't like to look at. And the other side of that tension is everything, 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 everything has a life, death, life cycle. Everything. It's the way of nature. It's the Tao. Here's another tension. The market will decide and bail us out. I mean, it's so interesting to me that some of the very same people who deeply and profoundly and ideologically criticized our government for bailing out the auto industry is now saying, let's bail out the airline industry. And I'm not even making any political judgments one way or another. A crisis is a crisis. In fact, I think I'm personally being asked to lower my, my, my judgments I would not want to be in the position of our government, but I'm just saying, suddenly ideologies seem to, ideologies seem to fly out the window. What was all this commitment to, to let the market sort it out? <laughs> all of a sudden, we change our mind. The very same preachers of such a position change their mind. So um, here's another one. Uh, I am nature. <laughs> I am nature. I am I'm nature. And no part of me is not nature, you could say. And also, it seems like something like, am I am outside of nature? Can I control nature? Can we control nature as a species? And there seems to be tension between um, these two uh, felt senses. I think right now there's tension, at least for me personally, between family and community. Most of my family... My mom lives here in town, and my brother does, but my sister lives down south, and um, my wife's family, a big extended family, all live in Georgia, and, and there's this tension, like, um, my community, my place, and my home, and, and, and the trees I'm looking at right now, the black walnuts, and, um, and the elm, two elms, um, and the place that I happen to be right now on this earth, this little plot of land and and my local community and also family of origin. There's some tension between these things. Um, I, I'm stealing this one from Russell Brand because I thought it's so good. Fear is inevitable. I, I was talking to somebody yesterday and they're like, I, I'm not afraid, I'm not afraid. And I was thinking about, um, I, you know, it's the Shakespearean line, uh, the protesteth too much. I think the protesteth too much, something like that. Um, meaning if you're, if you're going around saying how much you're not afraid, then, um, it's the other, the other word for that is denial. Fear is, 
natural, normal, instinctual, and can even be helpful. But Russell Brand says there's a difference between what he called neurotic fear and wisdom fear. Neurotic fear is being taken over like a subpersonality, like a complex and being reactive. And I'll give you some examples of my own extreme reactivity and freaking out that's been happening the last couple of days, even though, you know, I tend to think of myself as, quote, having done some work. Um, and then wisdom fear, which says, hey, there are no guarantees. In fact, everything is impermanent. We're all going to die. And therefore, how do we want to live? And how can we protect one another and the most vulnerable? That's wisdom fear. Maybe related to that is, is just a sense of panic and, uh, and a sense of wisdom. Maybe there's tension between these two things, panic and wisdom, panic and wisdom. And they seem to sometimes emerge um, just in the, almost in the same field of vision. Um, here, here's another um, tension here between what's, what's being called a novel virus, brand new, and a sense of history. That human beings have survived germs, pandemics, viruses, natural disasters, wars, tribalism, immigration, migration, and you complete the list. The human species is unbelievably resilient. And also, there's novel things that come up that we haven't yet faced in any... And in that sense, history doesn't repeat itself. That's a line from Abraham Heschel. In fact, um, maybe patterns repeat themselves, that's true, but the actual facts are never quite the same. He's, he's saying that in light of the Holocaust, that uh, don't compare things to it. Treat it as an independent anomaly and the horror that, that it was so that we can learn to face the present horrors, the sense of something novel coming into focus. So... Um, there's also tension around money. I know, I, I, know you, I know you're feeling it. I mean, who isn't? Like, I don't care if you're rich or poor, live paycheck to paycheck, or you have some stuff stashed away. Even if you have stuff stashed away, you're wondering, what is this stuff? What is money? So this, the, the idea that, I, that um, I need this to survive, and here the government is promising you know, us cash, and also a sense of just how literally paper thin it is. And, and that it is a kind of construct. And just feeling the tension of that uh, can be overwhelming. And um, maybe, maybe I'll end with this one. I could just keep going all day <laughs> naming tensions. But I think there's a tension between a civilization and nature right now. Uh, again, to quote Russell Brand, who was quoting somebody else, um, civilization is a clearing in the forest. It's a line I've heard before, but I hadn't thought about it in a long time. Civilization is a clearing in the forest. And um, yeah, just the way of nature. I mean, nature is complex. It's yin and yang. It's chaos and order. It's a beautiful, majestic, interwoven um, uh, mystery that we are all deeply connected in, and it's chaotic. And the borders and edges of, of what we call nature do not always behave the way we think they behave, or the, way, the way we think it should behave. It's the yin and the yang. And um, to acknowledge such a thing is deeply humbling. It's deeply humbling, especially... Uh, my wife was reminding me of something. She was reading a, a, an essay by um, Wendell Berry, and Wendell Berry was saying that there's a big difference between Thoreau and his naive love affair with nature who couldn't pull up weeds 
couldn't grow a garden because he couldn't pull up weeds. And what he called the farmer mentality, which is that there's something like a marriage that happens with, with the land. And in a marriage, there are fights. And just to be a human being and survive and thrive, we're in a kind of marriage with the natural world, which, which creates a lot of tensions. Um, and civilization is the embodiment of those tensions. And we have been for some time surviving on a kind of blind pillage of the earth, and it, we are now reaping the consequences. Um, and it can be tempting to want to go back to some sort of uh, naive, Thoreau-like uh, hunter-gatherer um, uh, maybe saw that that documentary, Grizzly Man, I think it was, where this this guy was so in love with with bears that one eventually ate him. I mean, that's that's where um, there's not a marriage that's happening. There's not a respect for um, for nature as also uh, embodying a certain amount of chaos and. Um, Anyway, I'm just describing the tension. I probably should give it some more thought. But anyway, between civilization and nature. And I think those of uh, the, the prophets among us are, are really trying to reimagine what civilization could be like with, with much more respect for the natural world, much more cooperative respect for the natural world. But that's not naive. That's not naive. Okay. Um, so that was just a list. And... Maybe at this point you want to sort of take some stock. What am I thinking about lately? What am I feeling? What am I sensing? What am I imagining? These four windows of knowing, thinking, feeling, sensing, imagining. Um, what is my full faceted self doing right now in this unprecedented time? And what was happening for me as I was sort of hearing these, the tension of opposites surfacing as, as the apocalyptic blinders come off and be, begin to reveal uh, the existing tensions of, of the human experiment. So what I want to do now is, I guess, drill down on a metaphor here. I want to talk about the sacred dance and the survival dance, and I want to talk about the extrovert-introvert dynamic and, and this sort of tension between these two things. And um, so the first, um, I want to acknowledge that I think a, 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 originally this metaphor, survival dance and sacred dance, came, comes from the Lakota culture. Um, I learned this from Bill Plotkin and, and Animus Valley Institute. This is some of the language we use as, as guides and guides in training, which I'm a guide in training there, um, as a helpful metaphor for working through the complexities of life. And, and it's a simple way of saying everybody has a survival dance. Everybody. I mean, you have to think, how am I going to make a living? What am I good at? What's my skill set? Um, what's my role in culture? How can my roles and identities and ways of being in the culture both be understood by myself and others? That's all survival dance stuff. And it's absolutely necessary. And, it, and in moments of collision, we ask again, what's my survival dance? Like I'm already thinking, I don't know if you're, what else can I do? What else do I need to be doing just to survive, just to put, uh, put food on the table and pay basic bills? Um, and I want to say something as clearly as I can. There is nothing wrong with ruminating and planning and using your full faceted self, thinking, sensing, 
imagining and feeling self to dream up ways of doing the survival dance. And, and you can do it, you know, and, and to say a bit more about that, what's also true about being a human is that behind that are the survival mechanisms, meaning fight, uh, flight or freeze. These instinctual reactions that have kept us alive up to this point and thank God we have them. Thank God we have fight, flight, or freeze. We wouldn't be here as a species. Uh, 200,000 years of human evolution and more specifically the last 50,000 years, as far as we know, of the human species, fight, flight, or freeze has kept us alive and they're present and, they're, and they surface and they surface in all of us no matter how much meditation we think we've done, how, much, how many yoga classes we've actually participated in. It's actually quite normal. I mean, I don't know if you saw those videos. I saw, I'm sure you did, <laughs> one, one video of a woman ripping toilet paper out of the hand of an old woman. And if you would have stopped around the street a month ago and said, hey, could you imagine a scenario where you would rip toilet paper out of the hands of an old woman in a grocery store because you were afraid you wouldn't get some? She would say to you, no. Not only could I not imagine that, I can guarantee you I would swear my life on it. I would never, ever behave like that. That's like crazy. No way would I do that. Yet, in the grip of fight, flight, or freeze, which comes up from the deep resources of, of our humanness, yes, we end up behaving like that. And afterwards, we think to ourselves, I'm sure she was mortified once she saw that the, a clip of herself gone viral. And she probably said, I don't know what came over me. That's exactly the right kind of response. And I don't want to get deeply into what are complexes and and subpersonalities and all that kind of stuff right now, another podcast for another time. Um, but let's just call them uh, energies, um, instinctual energies that are ever present and they're needed. They help us survive. And I just want to, to normalize them for a moment. But I also want to say, and to speak of the tension on the opposite pole, the sacred dance, there's also more to being human. So yes, we have fight, flight, freeze, rooted in fear. And we also have love, cooperation, and compassion. Those are deeply human. And actually what's amazing is um, sociologists, anthropologists, and even biologists are beginning to say part of what made us survive as a human species is our profound imaginative capacities for cooperation and compassion. No one would have thought that. I think when, when evolution first started as a as a theory, as a model, I suppose, um, you know, survival of the fittest got all the airtime. And that's how we got here, survival of the fittest. But only over time has that been a much more uh, a nuanced uh, slice of the pie. It is a slice of the pie, uh, survival of the fittest. But part of um, the fittest involved cooperation and compassion and love and a sense that we can get out beyond our own ego consciousness to move from egocentric to ethnocentric. So from me and mine to my tribe. And unbelievably, the human consciousness can expand to world-centric. And there are also higher levels. I don't want to get into them right now. But it's to remind yourself, yes, I experience the very ordinary fears. And, and I'm not above this, too. I was at Aldi, Aldi the other day, and I was kind of trying to play it cool. Like, um, 
I'm not freaking out like everybody else, but also inside I'm a little like, I better get the, the grocery store pretty quickly. And sure enough, they were out of potatoes and onions. And and I had that I, I, I had that brief welling of panic. Like, what if they're not here tomorrow? What if Meyer doesn't have them? What if DNW doesn't have them? I'm just naming stores that are near me. What are and and what if I can never get potatoes and onions again? What if they're gone? And and I'm not it's, it's like I'm not, it's not rational thought. It's coming from the instinctual side of safety and the, the very realities of scarcity, which has been part of the human equation up to this point. At times, things are scarce. And there's a kind of reactive and survival mechanism that takes over, and I just want to normalize it. And yet, that's not all we are. And even though there were no potatoes and onions, I pushed my cart out into the parking lot and people were not murdering each other. Amazingly, they were offering their quarter. You got to go to Aldi's, the best, to, to the next person. Here, take my quarter. And I'm like, okay, all right. Um, being a human being is deeply complex. Um, yeah, let me take a a little pause here for a second. I want to see if there's more on this. Otherwise, I want to move to introvert and extrovert. Well, maybe to quote Rilke again, let everything happen to you, beauty and terror. No feeling is final. Maybe that can be like a, a, a bell ringing in the church tower. No feeling is final, just keep going. To feel what you feel and to just keep going and that there's more there and all of us are going to need our survival dance right now but i'm here to remind you you have a sacred dance you have uh, a cooperative and compassionate way of being in the world that's needed you have something to offer you have a voice or a vox to use very old language which is where we get words like vocation you have a deep voice or vocation in the world that has nothing to do with your um, survival dance. You have uh, an art, you have music, you have um, speech, you have a phone call that maybe you need to make, you have a, a family matter that you need to settle, you have the capacity to love, otherwise you wouldn't be here. You wouldn't be um, a part of the, the, the human family. And just to be curious about um, what of my own sacred dance is needed in the world my way of seeing things, um, who, who or what might need my, uh, my sacred dance right now, which can emerge in times of collision. That's the irony. That, that's the pregnant possibility of the apocalypse, so to speak. Um, okay, I want to talk a bit about extrovert, introvert. Um, these are, these are, Jungian terms, extrovert, introvert, along with the other uh, functions, which I don't want to get into if you're at all familiar with the Myers-Briggs, which is rooted in, though not the same as, um, the way Jung talked about it. But extrovert and introvert are very interesting, and um, they've come into the common parlance. And one of the things I actually do on this podcast is try to pay attention to what kind of words are being used out in the spiritual-ish field, like Enneagram or or vulnerability, or and I just try to bring some additional hints and guesses around um, what seems to be surfacing. It's one of the things I do. And extrovert and introvert has now entered common parlance, and and people are identifying, and I might just add here, they're ego identified as either 
an extrovert or introvert. And the reason why that's interesting, first of all, is because the way, the way Jung talked about it is he said, yes, you have a dominant function and it can be more extroverted or introverted. You can process reality largely externally, look to the outside to process, or you can process reality, your ego can process reality largely through the inner field, what's happening in me as a way of processing um, reality. And he said, yes, people tend to have this as a dominant function. But one of the things is that our ego grips to it or clings to it as a sense of identity. I identify as an extrovert, people will say, or I'm an introvert. And actually, very quickly, it moves from that to using these terms as an excuse. Well, you have to understand, I'm an extrovert. That's what I need. Um, Oh, you have to understand, I'm an introvert. That's what I need. And although there's some truth to that, I just want to put in a challenge here. Jung saw that once you begin to become conscious of your patterns, right away, what unfolds in front of you is something like an opportunity to grow. And the opportunity to grow has to do with a conversation or a relationship with the inferior side or the inferior function. Or in other words, if you're an extrovert, you're going to need your introverted side. If you're an introvert, you're going to need your extroverted side if you want to grow up. If you want to remain the same, go ahead and remain the same. If you want to remain your own neurotic, extroverted, identified, ego-driven self, go ahead. If you want to if you want to remain identified with your neurotic, introverted, leave me alone, isolationistic self, go ahead. Your life, your choice, but I think the soul is going to keep knocking on the door and say something like would you like to grow up? So just to make this uh, a little less um, theoretical, I'm more of an extro extrovert. Um, it's my dominant function. I look for truth, experiences, um, human interaction. I look outside myself for information and data to process reality. So in times of stress, when I'm feeling overwhelmed, or abandoned, or the possibility of those two things, or both of those things, I move to more extroverted activities. Like, I just have to do something. Even if I've given it zero thought, I just have to stay busy. I have to l just move and stay connected and go out into the world. I mean, I made a mess of things because I went to my son's squad to pick up stuff from my son's school, and I'm like, you know, I had been awake already for hours drinking coffee with no breakfast. Smart move. And um, the school opened up, and I was like, I'm going to get there right when it opens up, and I'm going to get in there, I'm going to get all this stuff, and I drive in there, I race over there, and only on the way did I even think, I don't know where his locker is. Um, I don't know what even I have to get. I have no idea. I didn't even read the email that I was sent by the school. I just skimmed it. And here I am, you know, trying to save the world or save myself just by racing from from one thing to the next. So I have to get on the phone and call my wife and say, you got to wake Jonas up. I'm at the school. He's annoyed because I wake him up. And he and then it becomes like some sort of strange, um, you know, uh, game of clue. Go to the top of the stairs or some scavenger hunt, I guess, <laughs> some mystery scavenger hunt. Go to the top of the stairs, go left, go down to the to the last row of lockers, or I think the last row, or maybe it's not the last row, it's maybe the third to the last row, or I don't know, somewhere around there, and then look for a locker that has a gold sticker over the number 
I mean, like, what is going on? And then get this book and not that book in the band room. You go in there and you have to look for a cage and I think it's going to be at waist level. And I, you know, and I'm causing all this by um, reactively charging off in my extroverted way, um, <laughs> trying to repair the world. But meanwhile, I'm making a mess of things. I've really been hooked by something, and I could say a lot more by, uh, about that, but let's just keep it extrovert-introvert just as a kind of um, metaphoric way of, of talking about this for, for a few minutes. Um, other examples would be if you're on the phone, if you have a series of you know seven um, group text messages going, if you have an email chain and you're constantly replying all to everybody, if you are trying to book as many play dates and experience as you can, yeah, fear is present. Um, abandonment, most likely, is present. Maybe overwhelmment, but probably abandonment. And um, I don't want to have to sit in the the fragility of my own existence so i'm going to um book up the space as much i as much as i can and what i'd like to suggest is on the one hand i want to normalize that and say that's okay go ahead you that's what you do and i want to also suggest this is a massive opportunity for growth massive and um intentionally bringing some consciousness to it and and moving a little more toward silence, solitude, turning your phone off. I mean, these, if, if you really are an extrovert, these are terrifying what I'm talking about, honestly. Um, not watching the news, not looking for external input, and getting curious about what's going on in your heart and your soul, in your emotions, in your body, in your imagination, and in your thinking self. Thinking, feeling, sensing, and imagining, and doing some work around that, and allowing that to be. Otherwise, you will honestly drive everybody crazy with your neurotic spazzing. That's the extrovert. And I'm, I'm preaching to myself, okay? Um... Let's talk a bit about the introverted side. So the introvert, though not always, can really, um, is sometimes more, more prone to the sense of overwhelmment. And, and, and with the possibility of over, being overwhelmed by data or people or information or news or text messages or emails or, or whatever, fill in the blank, um, the move is to, to isolate and to separate. And again, these are survival strategies. You've needed them. In fact, you can be, you can be, get on your knees and thank the intelligence that's deeper than your ego for helping you survive the wars of childhood and, and the wars of adolescence. Um, and thank God you learned how to isolate because it's a dangerous world and maybe your family of origin was dangerous. And, and so in feelings of overwhelmment and, and sometimes abandonment, you want to separate. I mean, like, I'm sure if you're an introvert and you heard about social distancing, you're like, oh my God, yes, I can't think of anything better than not shaking someone's hand or having to hug somebody or stay six feet away. This sounds like paradise, okay? And um, so this, the, the, the move toward, I know what this is, but, but beyond that, this deeper sense of, I don't need anybody. And um, that can take on its own kind of uh, neurotic loop 
um, or caught in a hamster wheel. And increased isolation only leads to things like increased depression and anxiety. We know that that's a fact. That's a psychological fact. Um, and the move, the incredible opportunity for growth is not all at once. I mean, you don't have to like say, no, I'm an extrovert. Let's have a party. No, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about very small ways of opening opening oneself up to the possibility of input and to meeting somebody halfway and to responding to a text message. That alone might be a monumental leap to come out of the, the cubicle of space that you automatically have created around yourself, I think is brave and noble. And all I'm saying is that it leads to growth. It leads to ego growth. It leads to something like an expansion of consciousness. It, it, and that's what we need now more than ever. Like Einstein says, no problem can be solved by the same consciousness that created it. And right now, every single one of us has some responsibility to try as best we can to expand our consciousness. And if that's as simple as expanding out the way you identify, in other words, the extra extrovert introvert dynamic, or to come back to survival dance, sacred dance, expanding your consciousness around. Wait, who am I really? I know I know how to survive, fight, flight, freeze, but what about those deeper resources, which are sometimes archetypal? Like, um, think about the the major images that are in every um, that are in myths and stories around the globe the good father and the good mother, and I mean something more than just your parents, um, the king, the queen, the warrior, um, the sage, the trickster, I'm just listing archetypes, um, the elder, um, the wild indigenous man, the wild indigenous woman, the green man, the green woman. These are, these are deep and archetypal resources that really are about the, um, the powerful possibility of our own humanness. And those are also present. Survival dance and sacred dance. And what would it look like for your consciousness to expand um, and to bring into your field of awareness more of your faculties um, and more of your possibilities? So... As promised, I wanted to give a list of four things that, that I think all of us can do. Um, and here's the first one. Do a searching moral inventory. That's the 12-step that's the language, a searching moral inventory. Or, or I, might, I might make a small addendum, addendum here to it, a searching value inventory. How have I been living? What are my values? Have I been caught in a kind of relentless, materialistic, hedonistic treadmill are those really my values is that is that what matters right now the next iphone is that what matters and did it ever matter um how have i been spending my time these are searching moral inventory um have i have i been bowing down to use really old biblical language to some idol to some god that i do not need to be bowing down to anymore that's the, what I mean by searching more and, and get honest. What are my values? What kind of life do I want to be living? What are the values embedded in the way I eat, um, in the way I shop, uh, in the way I relate to my family and to my community and to, to the natural world? What really is needed now? We might be at the very um, threshold of a new... Uh, let me see if I can say this. We might be in the liminal threshold between some um, old, industrial, um, mechanistic, human conquering um, and pillaging way of being in the world and a cooperative, 
um, nurturing, uh, marriage, a love affair, um, and much more honest and real way of being in the world. It's, it's hard to know what to say because in, in Apocalypse, something is dying and something is born and we don't yet know what is being born. But no, con- no problem can be solved by the same consciousness that created it. All we can do is, is, um, is look for small ways to expand our own consciousness and trust that that too is, is in the field, in the interwoven field, and makes a difference. Searching moral inventory. Number two, cause less suffering. This is Buddhism. How can I cause the least suffering possible? I cannot think of a more important mantra than how can I cause less suffering? If that means simple things like avoiding crowds, you know, I'm not going to go about my business. I mean, there's all this thing that the government can't take my freedoms, you know. Maybe a better question is how can I cause less suffering? And um, I even think about what's going on online right now and the reposting and the blaming and the finger pointing and the conspiracy theories, before you hit repost, ask yourself, will this cause less suffering in the world? And if the answer is no, don't do it. I mean, I think really that's straightforward. But I'm saying that is a daily, maybe hourly, maybe minute by minute invitation. That's number two. Number three, um, I've been thinking a bit about um, faith and the spiritual life in general. Um, whether you consider yourself a person of faith or not, but um, the, the spiritual path, we might we might say, and and even prayer, and um, whatever your prayer, your meditation, your contemplation, whatever you consider your faith, um, I think feels uh, the pressure right now, and and your beliefs and your ideas about the way the world should be. And and, and I was reminded by something in the Bible. I thought about this uh, story of Hezekiah because Hezekiah is like one of the most famous kings in the Bible next to David. And and he's known for being a person of great faith because when the Assyrians were attacking him, he went in before the temple of the Lord and prayed for, for God to bail out after um, Sennacherib had sacked something like 46 cities in a row um, to bail out Jerusalem and and. And as the story goes, Jerusalem is not sacked by, by Hezekiah. And we say, oh, I mean, by Sennacherib, sorry, king of Assyria. And we say, unbelievable. Um, what a person of faith. Almost like a prayer, almost like prayer is a vending machine, you know, put in the quarter and out pops the Snickers bar. I did, Hezekiah did the right prayers, but that's not the story at all. In fact, that's not faith in the Hebrew sense. Faith is action. Faith is something like a value system and then acting with a certain amount of un, uh, with a certain amount of uncertainty acting in the world anyway hezekiah listen to this stripped off every single um, flake of gold and raided the treasury in the temple which was considered to be quote god's money and gave it to the king of assyria he paid him off and he dug a 386 yard tunnel now called hezekiah's tunnel you can come Next time Israel opens up, you can come and we can walk through it. He dug a tunnel to bring the Gihon Spring, um, which is a spring outside the city walls of Jerusalem. He dug a tunnel to bring it into the city so the city would have fresh water to survive a siege. That's faith. So the question of spirituality and faith and prayer, and I think we, I think 
the wisdom of the past of faith in the ancient sense is needed right now, and that's something like values plus action. How are we going to act in the world in a faithful way? Not just fall back on some sort of pie-in-the-sky sentimentality vending machine, maybe if we have enough prayers, God will save us, that sort of thing. That is not the origin of, of a word like faith. So in other words, logos, to use Greek language, and eros. Eros is the vitality in life, and logos is the logic and the rationality and um, the order. It's ordering chaos in a kind of cooperation, and that requires us to act in the world. So your question might be something like, what am I going to do? And the fourth thing, I think, um, I guess is just an invitation from Rilke, let everything happen to you, beauty and terror. And I think it's important to feel and allow ourselves to feel grief and loss and lament. You might find yourself um, turning toward these things instead of away, instead of trying to stay busy so you don't have to avoid. You know, Joanna Macy says, grief is the great teacher. And to open up to the loss, both of human life and of money and of culture and people's livelihoods, is to feel again the fullness of being a human being. And no feeling is final. Beauty and terror. So allowing yourself to feel uh, what you feel is maybe the fourth thing I, I want to add. And since I keep quoting Rilke, here's the poem. God speaks to each of us as he makes us, then walks with us silently out of the night. God speaks to each of us as he makes us, and then walks with us silently out of the night. And these are the words we dimly hear. You sent out beyond your recall. You sent out beyond your recall. Go to the limits of your longing. Embody me. Flare up like a flame and make big shadows I can move in. Let everything happen to you. Beauty and terror, just keep going. No feeling is final. Don't let yourself lose me. Nearby is a country they call life. You will know it by its seriousness. Give me your hand.